Welcome to the second week of Advent, our midweek Advent service for December 9th, 2020. We begin by listening to Josh Groban, What Child Is This? What child is this who lay to rest on Mary's lap child is this familiar hymn Christmas Carol we love to sing during the Christmas season is one of the most moving and beautiful Victorian carols that there is and it can be traced back farther than the days of the infamous Henry VIII though the song was registered to a Richard Jones in 1580 
Legend has it that the notorious King Henry might have even written the original lyrics himself, as he courted Anne Bolin. The song's association with King Henry was forever tied to green sleeves, when William Shakespeare used it in his play The Merry Wives of Windsor. The haunting melody, often associated with guitar or harpsichord solos, most likely predates Henry VIII by hundreds of years. As an ancient English folk song, there have been more than 20 different known lyrics associated with it throughout history, and many more might have been lost. First published in 1652, the melody became even more popular than the lyrics associated with Henry VIII himself. For much of its early life, the tune known as Greensleeves was associated with pubs as a popular drinking song. Although God is mentioned in a closing verse of the best-known lyrics, nothing about the song closely resembled a religious piece. It was simply one of the era's most popular folk songs. By the 19th century, Greensleeves was almost as beloved as God Save the Queen. Even without its association with Christmas and What Child Is This?, Greensleeves would probably still be a well-known tune in England today. Yet it was with different lyrics that the world fully embraced the British tune. William Chatterton Dix was assuredly not thinking about Greensleeves when he sat down with pen and paper to record his thoughts of Christmas in 1865. Dix was an insurance man by trade, but a poet by heart. Serious about his writing, he studied other poets, read classic literature, and spent a great deal of time in college working on his creative craft. The Englishman was even named after Chatterton, one of England's greatest poets. Dix's father, who insisted that William be christened with the scribe's name, had once written a biography of the poet and encouraged his son to follow in the footsteps of his hero. Born in Somerset, England in 1837, during a time when few adventurous folk migrated more than 50 miles from their place of birth, Dix found himself manger of a marine <clears throat> manager of a marine insurance company in Glasgow, Scotland, by the time he was 25. Though in charge of some of his company's most important accounts and eventually the head of a growing family, Dix still found time to write. Many correctly assume him of pursuing poetry as his passion and his job as a sideline venture. Dix's writing embraced a wide range of thoughts and subjects. It lacked much focus, however, until tragedy struck. A near-fatal illness robbed him of his strength and confined the man to bed for many months. As he lay near death, he often reflected on his faith. Reading his Bible and studying the works of respected theologians, Dix reaffirmed his belief in not only Christ as Savior, but in the power of God to move his own life. Not long after regaining his strength, an inspired Dix produced some of the greatest hymns ever written by an English layman. Songs by Dix such as Alleluia, Sing to Jesus, and As with Gladness, Men of Old are still being sung all around the world today. In the era while Dix was writing hymns and raising a familiar Christmas was not the commercial <clears throat> commercial celebration it is today. Neither was it a season where many openly celebrated the birth of Christ. Conservative Christian churches forbade gift-giving, decorating, or even acknowledging the day. 
These Puritan groups feared that if set aside as a special day, Christmas would become a day of pagan rituals, more than a very serious time of worship. Other churches held services, but were also intent on the day being reserved for only a time of worship. In this context, it was unusual for Dix to feel moved to write about Christ's birth, since many hymn writers of the period ignored Christmas altogether. There is no record of why Dix decided to write of the first Christ, to write of the first Christmas, nor did he share with his family and friends how the poem he penned was written quickly in a single session. Yet the writer's Christmas work entitled The Manger Throne quickly emerged as his most memorable effort. The song's powerful words presented a unique birth, view of the birth of Christ. While the baby was the focal point of the song, the viewpoint of the writer seemed to be that of an almost confused observer. In a stroke of brilliance, Dix imagined visitors to the humble manger wondering who the child was that lay before them. Employing this special perspective, the author wove a story of the child's birth, life, death, and resurrection. Each verse also answered with a triumphant declaration of the infant's divine nature. Dix published The Manger Throne in England just as the U.S. Civil War was ending. Perhaps because of the fragile state of America's collective spirit, bruised and torn by four years of fighting, the Manger Throne was quickly imported from Britain to the United States and became a well-known Christmas poem in both the North and the South. Yet while it was used in church services and printed in magazines and newspapers, it wasn't until an unknown Englishman coupled Dix's lyrics with the melody Greensleeves that the carol became immensely popular on both sides of the Atlantic. Unlike many others who penned lyrics to now-famous holiday classics, Dix, who died in 1898, lived long enough to see the manger throne become the much-beloved Christmas carol, What Child Is This? Though Dix's inspired words are now recognized as some of the most concise yet powerful ever used in a hymn, it is in reality the old English tune Greensleeves, with the advent of radio and recording, that allowed What Child Is This to continue to grow in popularity. Once the unique melody is heard, Greensleeves is seldom forgotten. Soulfully touching and beautiful when sung a cappella or accompanied by a lone guitar, it is also awe-inspiring and soaring when arranged for a cathedral choir or an orchestra. Perhaps that is why William Dix's song remains as one of the most beloved and remembered of all Christmas carols. We open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your coming. We give you thanks this Christmas that we can be sure of our salvation through your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for coming as a child. Thank you for coming into our hearts through your word, through your sacrament. We ask you, Father, to bless our time now as we prepare for your second coming. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Here's our reading from the Old Testament prophet Malachi, chapter 2, as we're reading a chapter every week in this four-chapter prophet. Malachi, chapter 2. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. 
Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offering and spread dung on your faces. The dung of your offerings you shall be taken away with you. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from the iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Here ends the second chapter of Malachi. day of Christmas my true love sent to me a partridge in a pear tree. On the second day of Christmas my true love sent to me two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the third day of Christmas my true love sent to me three French hens, two turtle doves and a partridge in a pear tree. On the fourth day of Christmas my true love sent to me Three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the fifth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me five gold rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. 
On the sixth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me six geese a-laying, five gold five rings, golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the seventh day of Christmas, my true love sent to me seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, five gold five rings, five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two and a partridge in a pear tree. On the eighth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me eight maids of milk and seven, seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, five gold rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the ninth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me nine ladies dancing, eight maids of milk and seven, seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, on the eleventh day of Christmas, my true love sent to me I sent eleven fibers fibers Ten lords a-leaping, nine ladies dancing, eight maids a-melting, seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, five gold rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me, twelve drummers drumming, eleven pipers piping, ten lords a-leaping, nine ladies dancing, eight maids Seven swans a-swimming, six geese a-laying, five gold rings, four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree, and a partridge in a pear tree. Thank you, Bing Crosby. For millions, the 12 Days of Christmas is nothing more than a novelty song. Most link this old Christmas carol with other nonsensical numbers such as Grandma run, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer or I Saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus. Yet even though this song seems to make little sense now, there was a time in England when the 12 Days of Christmas was once one of the most important teaching tools of the Catholic Church. Beginning in the 16th century, British Catholics were forbidden by law to practice their faith. The only legal Christian denomination of the British Empire was the Church of England. Those Catholics who spoke or wrote of their faith were arrested and tried under the laws of the time. If their violation was considered severe enough, they were either hung or drawn and quartered. Children as well as adults were subject to the same laws, and age did not prevent the state from dealing harshly with even a young practitioner of the faith. In the face of persecution and death, millions refused to abandon the religion of their ancestors. So much like the early Christians in Rome, Catholics in England went underground. They held secret masses, studied their doctrine behind closed doors, and hid all signs of their faith at home. They were an almost secret society. One of the most severe problems the Catholic underground faced was in teaching their children the doctrine of the church. 
Since writing down anything dealing with the Catholic faith could cost both writer and reader their lives, the messages of doctrine and faith had to be reproduced in secret code. One of the most successful codes ever invented by the Catholic underground during the period was a Christmas carol that on the surface appeared to make no sense at all. Ironically, this rather strange ode became so popular that it found its way into pubs, concert halls, and even the royal palace. Few, certainly not the king or the head of the Anglican Church, suspected that the meaning behind the song lyrics included some of the most important elements of doctrine of the outlawed Catholic Church. When it first became popular, many in England tried to explain that the meaning of the Twelve Days of Christmas could be found not in the presence, but in the days. There were several theories based on this explanation, ranging from the theory that the verses represented the days leading up to the December 25th to the explanation that the words embraced a gift-giving celebration lasting a dozen days after Christmas Day. During discussions in regard to which days the song referred, the meaning of the unusual gifts were most often passed off as the fancies of young man sick with love, the argument being that the gifts made no real sense because men in love rarely thought or acted logically. Yet nothing could have been farther from the truth. The gifts were the clue to unlocking the code. The days were simple, were a simple mark of the time between Christ's birth and the Epiphany. The time when the wise men came to honor the newborn king. They were nothing more. The secret meaning for the Catholic boys and girls was found not in the dozen days, but in the very special gifts. As the children sang, they weren't to think of the actual gifts, but of something much different. Every Catholic child was taught that only pure and true love came from God. So, from the beginning of the Twelve Days of Christmas, each singer understood that this song was about a heavenly love, not about a boy's crush on a girl. The importance of Christ's death and resurrection was the anchor to the faith and to the song, and was therefore repeated with each new verse. The single partridge in a pear tree represented courage and devotion above what man ever showed on earth. A mother partridge lures enemies away from her defenseless chicks in order to protect them. Just as she sacrifices her own life for her chick, so did Christ for us. Add, that, add to that the image of a pear tree that symbolized the cross, and together this first gift represented the ultimate gift given by the babe born on Christmas Day. The second gift, two turtle doves, stood for both the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. Doves were also symbols of truth and peace, once again reinforcing the tie to Christ and Christmas. Today, three French hens mean nothing, but in the 16th century, they were very expensive food items reserved for only the richest homes. If a banquet served French hens, then it was truly a meal fit for a king. In the song, the hens symbolize the expensive gifts brought from the wise men. When Catholic children sang the third verse of the song, they pictured not chickens, but gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The four calling birds stood for the authors of the Gospels that trumpeted the story of Jesus and told about his life and ministry from birth to death. In a very real sense, the birds' names were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In keeping with the biblical theme, the five rings stood for the five Old Testament books that Christians knew as the Law of Moses. 
and Jews refer to as the Torah. These gifts were to remind the singer of not only man's fall from grace due to sin, but the fact that a Savior would come to offer salvation and a path back to God. Six geese a-laying might have seemed comical to those who sang the song without knowledge of the phrase's true meaning, but to underground Catholics, this symbolic code was easily understood and incredibly logical. The Lord made the world in six days. Just as eggs are the symbol for new life and creation, so the geese laying eggs presented the whole story of God moving his hand over the void to create life. Seven swans a-swimming would have been a huge mystery to the uninformed as well. Paul's writing in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, speaks of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. These gifts, prophecy, service, teaching, encouraging, giving, leadership, and mercy, were linked to the lyrics symbol of the swans, birds considered by many to be the most graceful and beautiful fowl in England. Catholic children were thus taught that when you walked with God, the gifts of the Spirit moved in your life as easily as a swan on water. Eight maids a-milking represented the common man whom Christ had come to serve and save. At the time the song was written, no job in England was lower than working with cattle or in a barn. For a female servant to be used in this way indicated that she was of little worth to her master. Yet Christ, the King of Man, served people without regard to status, race, sex, or creed. The number eight in this verse also represented the Beatitudes listed in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemaker, and the righteous. In the verse that followed, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, were hidden by the image of nine ladies dancing. In truth, this dance taught the real joy and rewards of serving Christ. Ten lords a-leaping represented the Ten Commandments, since a lord was supposed to be a just and honorable man, and the final voice of law in his domain, it was understandable why ten lords would represent the ten laws God gave his people through Moses. There were twelve disciples, but in the end one of them did not embrace Christ or his message of salvation. The eleven pipers piping thus served as the image of the eleven apostles who took the message of Christ's life and resurrection to the world. The final gift, twelve drummers drumming, represented a very important confessional taught to all Catholics called the Apostles' Creed. The confession contained a dozen different elements. The drum was probably used as a symbol of the pace or rhythm that this creed gave each believer's daily walk with the Lord. The Apostles' Creed, familiar to even many non-Catholics, reads, and we confess, I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried, descended into hell, the third day he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. 
He shall judge the return to judge the living and the dead. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. It is doubtful that the English Catholics who composed and taught this song to their children would have wanted the true meaning of the 12 days of Christmas to be hidden forever. When the practice of Catholicism was no longer a crime in England, those who had created the song probably wished that its mysteries be revealed. Yet by the time Britain freed the Catholic faith, the words had taken on a life of their own and no one seemed ready to link the seemingly shallow song with other carols that spoke directly of the birth of the Savior. Even today, 400 years later, though the 12 days of Christmas has been recorded hundreds of times and performed hundreds of thousands of times, few can sing the song without laughing at its unusual message and the air capacity it takes to get through the whole thing. Perhaps the fun that masked its original intent is why the 12 days of Christmas has survived for so long as well as why the Catholic Church survived oppression in merry old England. Our devotion today comes from the book God is in the Manger, Reflections on Advent and Christmas by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Selections from his letters and sermons with a closing letter excerpt to his parents. Today is entitled, The Wonder of All Wonders. Bonhoeffer says, God travels wonderful ways with human beings, but he does not comply with the views and opinions of people. God does not go the way that people want to prescribe for him. Rather, his way is beyond all comprehension, free and self-determined beyond all proof. Where reason is indignant, where our nature rebels, where our piety anxiously keeps us away, that is precisely where God loves to be. There he confounds the reason of the reasonable, there he aggravates our nature and our piety. That is where he wants to be, and no one can keep him from it. Only the humble believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair, that he takes what is little and what is lowly and makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders, that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. Bonhoeffer writes about 1 Corinthians, That is the unrecognized mystery of this world, Jesus Christ. That this Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, was himself the Lord of glory, that was the mystery of God. It was a mystery because God became poor, low, lonely, and weak, but out of love for humankind, because God became a human being like us, so that we would become divine, 
and because he came to us so that we would come to him. God is the one who becomes lowly for our sakes, God in Jesus of Nazareth. That is the secret. That is the hidden wisdom that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9, No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived. That is the depth of the deity whom we worship as mystery and comprehend as mystery. 1 Corinthians 2.8-10 says, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Let us pray. Father, as we begin or end this day or in the middle of this day, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, a wonder and a mystery to the world, that why you would leave your throne and come to us as a child in humility in order to save us from our sins. In your mercy, we come to you. In your mercy, we ask for your forgiveness. We accept your sacrifice and we look to you for our eternal life. As we look to the birth and commemoration of the birth of your son, Jesus Christ, we look forward to your second coming. We ask that you would come quickly, take us home with you. For while there was no inn, room in the inn here for you as a child, you always make room for us in your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.